I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. The one stat that's vexed me since Election Day is this. 12 million. 12 million more Americans voted for Donald Trump's re-election than did in 2016. They did so in spite of Charlottesville, kids in cages, and its bungling of the response to the pandemic. How can the 81 million who voted for President Biden talk to or deal with the 74 million who voted for Trump? Is that even possible? Dr. Jonathan Metzl is the author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. He and I have been talking about these questions for weeks, and today we're bringing our conversation to you. Metzl talks about what he's learned from the new focus groups he's been doing, what he thinks is driving polarization in America today, and why the 2019 victories by Democrats in the Kentucky and Louisiana governor's races provide a roadmap for bridging the divide. Hear it all right now. Jonathan Metzl, welcome back to the podcast. Your third time. I'm a regular. I, I'm honored to be back. So I, I, the second time you were on, it was to put the response to COVID into context and why people were not taking the pleas of wearing masks seriously. Now we're after the election when 81 million people voted for Joe Biden and 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, 10 million more than voted for him in 2016. And so I've been dying to talk to you because there's, there's a conversation to be had in this country right now uh, about how do we move forward when we have a split like this in our country. And I want to start the conversation by actually going backwards. For those who have not listened to the first, our first conversation about your book, Dying of Whiteness, just in a thumbnail, because I know you know how to, you can do it. Talk about why you wrote Dying of Whiteness and the important message that you're getting across in that book. Sure, absolutely. Well, Dying of Whiteness is a book that I started actually before Trump became president and kind of tracked the, the rise of, of Trump um, in, in, in where I live, Tennessee, Kentucky. I'm also from Kansas City, so Kansas and Missouri. And what I saw was the rise of a kind of politics that on one hand promised to make white America great again, but did so on the really on the lifespans of everybody, including its own supporters. And so what I did in the book is I just tracked the rise of kind of anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun politics in, in the rural Midwest. And then I'm a, I'm a physician also, so I applied a, pu- a public health lens. And I asked the question, what happens if the politicians you vote for block, for example, Medicaid expansion in your own state or undermine the, um, the public school system that your kids go to or make it very easy for anybody to get a gun with no background check? And I, I really just tell the story of how the policies that were supposed to make white America great again and did in some ideological ways ended up being as dangerous for rural white people in the, in the Midwest and South as asbestos or not wearing seatbelts in their car or um, secondhand smoke. They literally became 
disease risk factors, the actual policies that shortened lifespans of many lower income people, um, including white supporters. And so in the book, I talk about how those particular politics end up shortening white lifespans by anywhere from a month to a couple of years in some instances. And I go around and really ask people, why is it? Why are you supporting policies that are so bad for your health and your lifespan? And I come up with a bunch of different answers, but one is that the investment in this idea of what it means to be white as being on top of a particular hierarchy that has to keep everybody else down ends up being a kind of um, siren call for people that causes them to really forget all of the other tenets of, of what we might otherwise think of as self-interest. And it creates a kind of polarizing rhetoric of us versus them that, that propels support for these politics, even when they're killing their own supporters. And what's interesting, the person who crystallizes everything that you just said is a person you call by the name of Trevor. And it was in the context of your interviewing people uh, about healthcare in, was it Kentucky or Tennessee? Tennessee, right. Right, in Tennessee. Yeah. And and what the, I thought I had the the line here in my notes in front of me, but I don't. But he talk who was Trevor, and and in answering the the key line, the key thing he told you. There are two stories about the Affordable Care rollout in Tennessee. One is that so we were studying the Affordable Care Act rollout in Tennessee. Tennessee is a state that has really crappy public health infrastructure, and people are dying of preventable causes. And so part of the story was that the Affordable Care Act promised people in Tennessee better health, better health care, better access to doctors, more help paying for prescription drugs. And so part of the story of Tennessee was a story where in the very beginning of the rollout of the ACA, 2012, 2013, 2014, we were on the ground doing focus groups. And in the first few months of that process, everybody, conservative, liberal, white, black, everybody was like, this is awesome. I'm finally going to get health care. I'm finally going to get help paying for my prescription drugs. So the first couple of months, it was, everybody was like, I'm down with this. Thank you for this assistance. And then the disinformation machine took over, the one we know all too well because of the pandemic. And among the central narratives of that disinformation machine are a kind of story of black people are going to take stuff that's yours. <laughs> um, immigrants and minorities are going to cut in front of you in line. There's not going to be enough to go around. And so the minute that narrative spread, we literally saw people change their mind about the Affordable Care Act. And we were doing a focus group in Tennessee. And there was a gentleman who was literally dying of liver, liver failure, a man in his early 40s who was, who was dying. And he, he could hardly walk um, in tremendous pain. This guy needed medical attention. And we were doing this group and I was saying, you know, the Affordable Care Act will help with this and this and this. And the guy said, I know this thing could save my life, but as he put it, ain't no way I'm signing up for a program that's going to benefit Mexicans and welfare queens. This idea that basically um, I'm not going to support a program, even if it might help me, if those benefits might also go to who I see as undeserving racial others. And in a way, that's why I called the book Dying of Whiteness is because that's the trade-off. Right, that to maintain this idea, this notion, this to think of Du Bois, this psychological 
and not material wage of whiteness, people were literally, even on death's doorstep, willing to trade weeks and months of their lives um, if, if they thought they were part of a program where undeserving immigrants and minorities, quote unquote, Mexicans or welfare queens, were going to benefit them as well. Were you surprised when he said that? I, I'd been tracking that dynamic for a while. Um, there was something about the starkness of, of, of somebody. And it's just a picture of this scene, right? This, this guy is, he's not, he's not old. He's not, I mean, this is somebody in their early 40s. And in, in this gentleman's story, he had had a relatively successful life at a, at a certain point. He had worked in a restaurant, had a family, all these kind of things. And, and his story was one where um, it's, it's a story similar to many stories in the South where he was working. And then one day he felt a, a pain in his abdomen or he, other people would have a bloody cough or some blood in their urine, something that suggested not only that their health was about to turn, but that he was going to suffer from an illness that was going to be chronic. And, and in the South, when there's no safety net, if you have a chronic illness and you're working without um, employer health insurance, you're just going to fall through the cracks and nobody really cares. I mean, really, the, the system itself is not designed to catch you when it should. And so part of the graphic nature of that story was seeing someone who was a living embodiment of the failure of the Southern healthcare system because he could have been in better health. And also his symptoms could have been caught a lot sooner if he would have had health insurance, which would have let him go to the doctor sooner. So he was an embodiment of the failed system. And then he crystallized the argument, which was, um, I know the system is broken, but there's something more important to me. And I think this is the important part. There's something more important to me than my own longevity. And that's that this system that I've been told to that I'm that I'm told that I need to believe in the system of what it means to be a Republican is to reject the ACA. What it means to be a Southern white person is to make sure other people don't cut in front of me in, in line. So he crystallized and embodied that system in a way that really, for me, was in a way an embodiment, a diseased embodiment of what I meant by dying of whiteness, but also. A cry for help. I mean, to be honest, it was it was sad to see because I wanted him to have health care and I wanted him to have a different attitude about it because clearly he, he needed help. Um, do you have an update on Trevor? I, I don't I don't identify a lot of the symptoms right. of the people. Um, a lot of I, I can just say on a kind of rule. And um, these were in this part of the research, not all of it, this part of the research. Um, we did focus groups. And so we we basically don't keep identifying information about people in ways because we don't want to answer that question on national media. Like, <laughs> how, how can we find this person? Uh, <laughs> but I can't, but I can say that a number of people, we did focus groups for three years and a number of the people we spoke with passed away over the course of the time of our research. And sometimes they passed away from unavoidable causes, but sometimes it was very clear that people were dying of they, think, oh, excuse, th they were dying of things that should have been prevented, um, things that should have been prevented. And, and in a country as wealthy as ours, um, really could have been caught sooner if they had um, if they had adequate, adequate health care. Mm -hmm. um, so now you are you are in the field. Well, let me start, let me start again. So one of the other things that I found really fascinating about dying of whiteness, and we're going to move to what you're doing now, 
is what you write about in terms of gun control and gun laws in Missouri. And the startling thing that came out of that is these gun laws came into being because, you know, oh, you've got to protect yourself from the marauding, you know, dark hordes that are going to come and, you know, take your homes and stuff like that. And what ended up happening was that the life expectancy of white men as as a result went down uh, over time. I'm, I'm from Missouri. Telling the gun story of Missouri was a very personal story for me because I'd seen the effects of what it meant to just have open door, unfettered gun access in a place like Missouri. And it was in many ways catastrophic, even though a lot of people thought it was like the greatest thing ever. But really, when I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, people had guns. Uh, there were guns that they used for hunting, guns that they had passed down from their, had passed down in their families. And that was always no big deal. But the Kansas City and the Missouri that I grew up in had a process. There was something called a permit that people had to get to buy a gun, uh, which meant that you had to fill out some paperwork, do kind of a version of a background check, um, get the okay from the sheriff's office. I found out the whole thing took about three minutes. And, and then there was a kind of NRA takeover of Missouri, like many other states. And, and part of that takeover was in part about doing away with all the legislation that governed just getting a gun or carrying a gun. And the other part of that takeover was um, changing the narrative of why people felt they owned guns. And so um, initially, when I grew up and across the country, people owned guns. If you look at Pew opinion polls, um, 70 to 80% of people who owned guns said that they owned for hunting, for, for sport, for recreation, family history. Um, and, and, and the NRA really needed to change that narrative. And so it started, as I show in the book, using these kind of racial narratives, the, uh, the dark other is going to come get you, or white men are losing their, their, um, <laughs> their privileges, their power, their masculinity. So guns became a way of restoring a kind of fallen white masculinity. Um, and also they, be, they became a way of protecting yourself. It wasn't for hunting anymore. It was like protecting yourself from to think of the Wayne LaPierre quotes from before the NRA, the head of the NRA, um, carjackers and gangbangers. They basically convinced everybody that they needed to have guns to protect themselves from racial others. And again, this tied into a narrative of whiteness that really worked on white people in a way that it, it was intended in many ways. White people ran out, bought tons and tons and tons of guns. And, and the story I tell in the book is a, is a trade-off on one hand, they see this as a way of defending the castle of whiteness using the castle doctrine language that the NRA promoted. Um, whiteness became literally a castle and a man's home is his castle and he needs a gun. And on the other hand, death rates soared up, not by gangbangers or carjackers. Uh, what we saw was that the, the rates of death that shut up were white male suicide, um, partner violence, other kinds of things. And so again, this idea of what it meant to be an idealized white person was at odds with white longevity. And so that's really the story of that part of the book. And so now that everyone is up to speed on two thirds of, of dying of whiteness, we won't talk about education in Kansas, um, but you're now, you're back in the field. You're doing focus groups again. How long have you been back in the field and what are you looking to discover this time? 
it's funny we're talking about this now because I'm really in many ways just starting the focus group part of the research, but I've been doing a lot of interviews, follow-up interviews with the subjects uh, that I talked to within Dying of Whiteness just because we bonded over the course of the research. And actually I've, I've been checking up on people. So I'm doing a lot of longer interviews with people. And we're also starting again, uh, just a, a couple of months ago, the focus groups around, around healthcare. And so part of the story is, I just wanted to <laughs> check in and see how, how people were doing. Um, but, it, but it's been remarkable to tell these stories of whiteness um, during the pandemic, and there are so many different things I could tell you right now. Um, a, 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 but, but I think part of the story, I think probably if I had to think what's the most powerful narrative that I've come across, it's that some people I spoke with in my research were completely, completely kind of, they were probably storming the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. Or um, if uh, if not, then they were supporting it or something like that. I mean, people were already radicalized. They were already in this version of, we need to defend whiteness at all costs. They were caught up in the Trump stuff. And and so part of it is that that wasn't surprising, but a number of people I talked with in my research are people that I call centrists. They're Republicans, um, but they are wanting to work with the other side. Uh, they uh, the, the whole last part of the book is saying there are people on the other side, quote unquote, who are wanting to work if we can just kind of give them language. And so one of the most powerful things that I've been doing recently is checking in with the people who I call the centrists in, in my book, people who that I thought were kind of, here's people we can work with to create a better future. And what I'm finding the most kind of surprising early finding, or maybe it's not surprising, is that many people who were centrist before are now becoming more radicalized. They actually feel like there's no place for them to go, like there's no one for them to talk to. And so for me, the terrifying part is not that some of the people I spoke with who were extreme, they're still extreme, no surprise about that. But I, I feel like, and, and I felt this more broadly, we're kind of being pushed into one camp or another right now. And so people I know, and a, a Kansas school board uh, member who uh, is a Republican, but had worked across the aisle, um, a Republican um, gun uh, person in Tennessee, who, um, who also thought it was crazy that we didn't have background checks. I can go down the list. I've been checking with people and to a person, they're all feeling like hopeless in a way for, for the center in a way. And so for me, that's the most surprising part um, among the other stuff. I mean, certainly the crazy stuff is quadruple crazy, but but I do think that the middle, at least in the people I've been interviewing, and I can give some examples of this, um, is, is being evacuated. I find that to be much more terrifying. So then why, I'm, te yeah, terrifying. I'm sort of speechless here because I'm wondering how does someone who was centrist how are they how were they being radicalized how are they finding it necessary why are they finding it necessary to leave the middle and join the folks who who were already radicalized was there a defining moment defining issue do they believe that the election was stolen i mean I'm, help me understand I think the issue, and I hope I can give this credence from their perspective, is not that they think the election is stolen. And it's not that, I mean, I've met many Republicans over the course of this phase of the research who, for example, believe strongly in COVID, have, are, are wearing masks all the time, um, 
really were upset with the Trump administration for um, for ignoring the COVID crisis. And that's why in, in a couple of instances, they didn't vote. So it's not like they're becoming extreme to that point. But I think that what, what people tell me is every time we see the quote unquote liberal media, all that's being replayed again and again and again is the storming the Capitol video. Um, and when we go to kind of our workplaces, there are, there's no, there's just no middle ground. Like either you're, uh, either if you voted for Trump, you're a racist or, and if you don't, then whatever. Uh, that, that's one example somebody gave me. Another person who works in schools said, um, if you didn't support that, they felt school shutdowns completely and wanted to work on, um, wanted to work on reopening the schools that put you in the Trump camp because you were anti-COVID. So they just don't feel like there's a camp for them right now. It's not, it's not that they're becoming, you know, running out there so much. It's more that there, there's a feeling of hopelessness among the people who I felt were kind of the people we could kind of all work together with to create a, a future. And as people have explained it to me, it, it actually, I, I've, I've really been thinking a lot about this, right? And I, this conversation between you and I actually started because I sent you a note and I said, the media is getting this all wrong. Um, and I do feel that way in a certain way because the media is telling the story of the extremes but really the scariest thing that's happening right now in our country is that on both sides, the, the centrists, uh, look at the Republican Party. If you're even, I mean, let's say he's not really a centrist in many ways, but there's a kind of open war on people who are even willing to re relate to the other side. And, and maybe there's a Democratic version of that as well. And so really the, the story of what's happening now for me is happening in the middle. And, and that's kind of why I sent you that note. Right. And so, and we started talking about this um, because I'm trying to figure out and how do, how do we all talk to each other? And I'm struggling with this because I'm part of the 81 million who voted for Joe Biden because, um, you know, what I like Joe Biden, but two, what president Trump did as president of the United States was so, offensive and immoral, amoral, everything that we are, that I was taught we were supposed to be against as Americans in terms of upholding the Constitution. He incited an insurrection of the United States Capitol and then sat back as, you know, the violence ensued. Um, so for me, and a lot of the 81 million the idea of even being able to talk to the 74 million who voted for Trump is something that doesn't quite compute. How do you talk to someone who voted for somebody who did all of the things that we saw over four years? And that's what got our conversation going. And so I'm, please tell me, what, how do we do that? Well, I, and of course, I, as I hope is clear, I'm in no way excusing any of that horrific stuff and 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 some of the people i spoke with um are not are not so much trump supporters in terms of having a trump flag and being out there and doing all the um you know stop the steal nonsense and all this kind of stuff they're they're those aren't the people i'm talking to but in a way that's in a way the story i mean i would say that there are many mitt romney equivalents out there. So I guess part of the point I would make first in answering your question is that that 72 million is not a monolithic, um, is not monolithic, right? Everybody didn't support or not support Biden 
for for different reasons and and that's kind of partially what i'm what i'm finding is that some people were angry about the um economic fallout of the uh, of the pandemic and they worried that the democrats were going to instill further shutdowns which were going to further the pain now i realize that, that that doesn't seem logical to somebody who's a democrat but if you're living in the middle of michigan and you're a libertarian like the people I, i've been interviewing um, they see Democrats um, and Governor Whitmer and people. Uh, that what that what comes to mind for them is destroy our business and stuff like that. And part of the issue is they're living in an area where there's no there's no counter narrative to that echo chamber in a particular way. And so part of the reason that they sat this election out, many of them, because they don't like Trump, um, but they didn't vote for Biden, is because they worried that that um, Democrats were going to, according to their narrative, keep their schools closed or not help their small businesses. And of course, Democrats are doing <laughs> things to help them right now. Um, but I would say that for me, those are the people that um, if we wanted to think about how to talk to people, you're you're not, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of research that probably 20 to 30% of people are are on, on the extremes on, on both sides, right? Um, but I do think that if you think about our common problems right now, our common problems like we want to end this pandemic. And so the more people who are invested in doing community public health, the better. We want to expand the Affordable Care Act. So the more people who sign up for the Affordable Care Act, the better, including people who don't maybe agree with us ideologically. And I could go down the list. There are many problems in which um, thinking about ways to expand that narrative and, and maybe bring in people, um, I think is is in our interest. And I think part of the issue is polarization makes it harder. I mean, we are totally at a loss of how to how to talk to people, but what we don't see is that polarization is pushing people into different camps. And sometimes they're radical. And sometimes um, they're people who, I mean, in a way, I've been doing public conversations um, on social media with some of the people I'm talking about here to just try to say, hey, let's let's figure out how we can talk to people. And and when you hear this, it's not like they're saying I support kids in cages. Um, but I do wish sometimes that we had a better counter narrative for specifically some of those things. I mean, that's what we're doing now, but the economy, the schools, things like that. Um, so, so part of the issue for me is create a landing space, a guide, a plank for people who might be closer to the middle to come over, come over, or at least engage in those conversations. For me, that's kind of where, where, where we should be telling certain stories. Sorry. No, actually, when you said the thing about, you know, putting kids in cages, it sort of hit me that, I mean, could, and I'm just talking out loud here, were people pushed into their respective corners by a now former president who did things that were so in the extreme that, you know, you had to, you had to pick a side. And that there was no room for there was no room for anything else. I mean, it, there was no room for nuance because nuance was unavailable. It was stark. It was black or white. Yeah, kids in cages or not. Do you support that or do you not? And so, do you think that we could find that that landing space simply because we now have a president of the United States and an administration that is not? talking or governing on the extremes and focus focusing in on 
we want to end the pandemic. We want to get um, people back to work. We want to get kids back in school and not turning every policy discussion into a do or die ideological battle. You're either with me or or you're not. That's exactly right. I mean, I think there are two, <clears throat> really three important <clears throat> points about that. I mean, one one important point is I think there's a hunger on many, many sides here for functioning governance. And so I think part of the way you undo that mistrust of the government narrative is you have functioning government. I think there's a hunger for that. And if you look even at polls now, people who might have supported Trump who didn't, they didn't support him because he he blew the pandemic um, and, and, and he did other things in their lives. And so I think partially having government function in ways that people can rely on will, will partially address some of these issues. Um, I also think that we often lose sight of just how polarizing the pandemic itself is. If you just think about the nature of the coronavirus, it's actually a mortal danger to talk to people you don't know. And so it's creating a kind of tribalism just in our society where people end up aligning with their pod, their ideological pod, their social pod. And so partially, I think that it's, we just, we often lose sight of it now, but so much of the polarization that's happening now is in part because of the pandemic itself. And so getting the pandemic under control, hopefully will re re restore that public square. Now, that being said, I personally, having researched the Affordable Care Act, gun policy and education policy, believe that um, it costs the Democrats nothing. And in fact, they could gain a lot by doing various kinds of almost charm offensives in middle and red state America that kind of speak the language of people there. But I mean, it's not like people don't want healthcare. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of issues I'm working on now where people in, in many parts of the country just talk about government and healthcare in very different ways. They, they, talk, they see it as a personal choice. They're afraid of, for example, um, out of the blue medical bills, all these kind of things. I've got, I've got a whole list of things. And so in a way, if your goal is to get more people to sign up for the Affordable Care Act, to assure the viability of the Affordable Care Act and put pressure on red state politicians to support and expand it, why not have a kind of charm offensive to red state America that speaks their language and ask them, wouldn't your life be better with healthcare? That's just one example. Um, but, but I think, again, our larger goal is assure the viability of the ACA to do things we care about. And, um, and so in a way, I personally feel like there's a messaging issue here that could allow people at an almost off ramp off that highway in a way that could it still support because again, I think that education is a similar, a similar factor. It's not like people don't want education. It's just that either you're with us or you're with the terrorists is kind of the, the choice. And so in a way, I, I just think that I just think that there's a messaging opportunity right now, in, in addition to a legislative op, uh, op opening, that could really broaden our base in a way that, again, is not in any way at odds with anything we stand for in terms of racial justice or equity. Um, but it gets us away from, I think, the narrative of if you're on the other side, that means you want the coronavirus or all these other kind of crazy binaries that we fall into. So on 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 this issue of, of messaging, I'm wondering, I hear you about about messaging, but given everything that we've talked about from the beginning right through now, I'm wondering, can messaging 
no pun intended, Trump whiteness? I mean, for some people, it won't. I mean, for many people, it won't. I, I certainly believe that. But it's just interesting for people who read Dying of Whiteness, they know that there are many, I argue in the book, there are many ways of being white. And some of the ways are the Trevor way of I'm going to die rather than, you know, it, rather than help other people. And, and there are many people who feel that way. But I think a lot of polls show that there are many people who are are kind of in the center uh, in a way. And I think we, we forget that, and particularly during the pandemic. And the reason I say that during the pandemic is because our think about in the normal world, we, we interact with people who are different than us at, at the workplace or the gym or sports teams, and all that's gone now. And so the only way we see other people is through um, Black Lives Matter protests. And therefore, all Black Lives Matter protesters must be looting. But no, those are just the times that's just how you get on TV. And, and the same thing, of course, with the stuff at the Capitol. But what you forget is that's 0.001% of the actual thing. And so there's a slippage that happens where you assume all white people must have been storming the Capitol or something like that. And you, you forget that um, there's just a broad, a broad spectrum. And so I've seen research, not by me, um, that talks about its um, like the tribes project, the hidden tribes project of America. And they do these kind of identity and ideology questionnaires. And it turns out, believe it or not, most people exist on some kind of spectrum that's broadly in the middle. That's most people. Um, but there's just not a home for them. And so I, I'm just I'm just saying it costs us nothing to try to broaden our base by at least giving a shot to um using that kind of messaging to bring people who might be inclined toward the center, just giving them a place to land in a way, again, that furthers our own goals, our own legislative goals. Uh, final question for you. And, and that is, you know, another question involving Trump and whiteness. But do you think that the the power of whiteness um, is diminished Without Trump in the White House, without Trump as president, pushing it as hard as he did during his four years. I mean, isn't it ironic that the minute Trump is gone, um, all of a sudden we have almost another Trump figure, <laughs> you know, in Marjorie Taylor Greene, like in a way the Republicans just needed to find another Trump. Um, and so part of it is when 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 certain people are in a kind of authoritarian mindset in a way, they've, it, she's almost Trump 2.0. So the irony of this moment at, at the Republican Party level is, is kind of disheartening in, in, in a particular way. And I, I certainly think that there are plenty of people who are going to pick up the torch of whiteness and run with it in the way that she uh, she obviously is aiming to do and Joss Hawley and other people. Um, but, but again, I also think that this moment, this moment is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, to broaden... Our, our coalition. And so I'm not in any way suggesting, I mean, I wrote a book, Dying of Whiteness, which was a critique of this idea of whiteness. Um, and I don't think it's going anywhere. But I would also say that now is, an, now is an opportunity. And there are other examples, other moments in time where people have faced similar crisis moments and actually use it to broaden their coalitions. And one I talk about a lot is actually below the radar, but in the middle of Trumpism, Democrats won gubernatorial elections in Kentucky and Louisiana, and they did it by 
depoliticizing their language in a way that broadened their coalitions, which then brought people to their side. And in Kentucky, for example, I mean, Kentucky is a mess in all these other ways, um, but it was pretty important during the pandemic to have, for example, Medicaid expansion in that state during the pandemic. So it led to a goal that we cared about. And so I tell people, study the gubernatorial races, for example, in, in Kentucky and Louisiana, and you can see an example of a way in which you still fight for the same ideals. And I hope people can hear me in saying, I'm, I've fought for ideals my entire life, but I also want us to broaden our coalition and, and stabilize our country and not go toward a civil war, which is what I've been worried about. And the way you do that is you broaden the coalition. And so I think there are examples like that where we can say, um, you know, here's a way to um, run political campaigns in ways that might have some messages for us for, for the present day of getting to the ends that we want. Dr. Jonathan Metzel, author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, director of Vanderbilt University's Center for Medicine, Health and Society. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Wonderful. Let's keep talking. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.